thank uh, Pastor Lauren for preaching. Aren't you proud of our women preachers in the house? Give it up for Pastor Lauren. She did a great job. We are not ashamed of believing in women in ministry, and they certainly bless us, don't they? Sometimes people say, well, women in ministry, you know, they preach about surface-level things. Not the women here. They preach the Word of God. Amen? Praise God. And so we affirm our women in the ministry. Second service had Brother Lawrence, and I heard from some of you that was one of your favorite messages. I don't take it personal. Just know that uh, uh, we are honored to have such great preachers with us. John chapter 20. Verse 1, my Lord and my God, let me also just share this with you. Dallas is doing well. Keep them in your prayers. I had the honor of preaching there. And we're believing God for that church to grow. So ask God to continue to send disciples there as he has sent disciples here. We are now at the resurrection narrative of Jesus in the Gospel of John. We have gone chapter by chapter, verse by verse for almost two years. Hopefully you have joined with us. And now you're going to see the tying together of some themes that we heard way at the beginning of the gospel. We're not using the karaoke screen for the whole month of July because I'm wanting you to go back to your Bible. If you don't have a paper Bible, we'll give one for free or you can use a smartphone. How many know dumb people have smartphones? And it's time for Christians to use smartphones and get wisdom. Amen? So don't keep putting your face on Facebook. Put your face in God's book. Amen? Because I just turned on my flashlight. Isn't that weird? Sometimes Siri comes and starts talking to me. I'm like, Siri, I ain't talking to you. John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Highlight first day of the week and say it with me. First day of the week. If someone who keeps the Sabbath came to you and said, why do you go to church on Sunday when one of the Ten Commandments is to go to the church on Saturday, what would your answer be? You would have to have a consistent worldview according to the Bible. See, we as Christ followers in the new covenant go to church on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, and not the last day, the seventh, because this is the day Christ rose from the dead. Some may say the Lord's day. See, the Lord's Day is the church's day of worship. That is where we see in the book of Revelation that John was meditating and praying on the Lord's Day, and he received his visitation. Paul then speaking to the churches says, on the first day of the week as you gather, bring together your offerings so that when I come, I can disperse it to the churches. Somebody say the Lord's Day. Amen. So now you know the, pre the premise for that. But notice when they say what they say about the Sabbath, that they themselves are hypocrites. Because remember, anytime you want to try to keep a part of the law, the Bible says you have to keep all of the law. Can I hear an amen to that? And if you study the combustion of your engine, that is fire. That is why Jews do not drive on the Sabbath. Any Christian thinking they're better than us because they worship on the Sabbath and drove their a car that's not electric but gas is a hypocrite because they've ignited fire. Can I hear an amen to that? The second thing is, is there is a Sabbath day journey that you're allowed to take and no farther. That Sabbath day journey is violated by those supposed Sabbath keepers. Everybody go, oh, snap. The next thing that you see is that the Sabbath revolved around the other functions of the law. So the moment you say, I am a Sabbath keeper because of the law of Moses, 613 laws are standing by you going, hello, what about us? You see, one of those laws says on the Sabbath, and remember, that wasn't for church. That was for their gathering and their day of rest. It is uh, incorrect to now apply it to the church and to temple worship because the temple worship had a system all of its own. So do they have a temple? Of course not. Do they have priests on earth? Of course not. Do they have the sacrifices? Of course not. Do they have the dress code? Of course not. All of these things that they are doing, uh, all these things that they are ignoring are showing that they're doing the very same thing Jesus said to the Jews that they were doing wrong, which is putting the traditions of men above the word of God. See, the Bible says we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Where's the temple of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant? Point to it. 
It's you. So you've brought your temple here today. So you don't have to worry about going to a temple. You are the temple. But the church is not trying to be a temple. A church is trying to be a gathering of the temple or the stones of God to make the body of Christ. So to see it as a one-to-one comparison of the Jewish temple is incorrect. It is a new covenant for a reason. God is doing something new in the new covenant. And then Christ, when he comes down to earth, he will establish a legitimate temple that he'll rule and reign from in Jerusalem, and there we'll have some practices implemented again. But until then, the church is a gathering of God's people who are all individually the dwelling place of God. Can I hear an amen to that? I want you to understand this because it gets popular on the internet for people to start doing these things, and then the moment we start questioning them, they start getting their feelings hurt. And so I want you to make sure that you can do this in the right way because they are some of the most antagonistic uh, vipers that you'll meet online is they want to put you in the bondage of legalism. And they'll say stupid things and try to sound smart by saying things like, oh, it was the Council of Nicaea that this. They don't even know what they're talking about. Ask them for three things the Council of Nicaea decided, and they don't know what they're talking about. Muslims think that the Council of Nicaea made the Bible. Uh, Other people think this, and and they don't know what they're talking about. Brothers and sisters, understand this from the Scripture. The New Testament is based upon the rest resurrection of Jesus Christ. From this point on in this gospel, as you go to the end, all the way to the epistles, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the central thing that you're going to do. It's not a diet. Go quickly with me to Colossians chapter 2. It's not a special day of the week. It's not a special way that you dress. Now, the first thing that they'll say back to you after you say these things is they'll say, well, now are you lawless? Do you have no law? No, we have the law of Christ. Somebody say the law of Christ. We have the law of Christ. Now go with me to Colossians chapter 2. Notice this in verse 16. Paul is dealing with these same kind of arguments. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you what? Eat or drink. You got a problem with me eating pork? You're in the wrong Bible. Why did the Jewish people not eat pork? Why did they not mix two claws together? Why did they not eat shellfish? It was because in the Old Testament, God was preserving a culture. Culture is known by your diet. Culture is known by your dress and your customs. Can I hear an amen to that? Is anybody wearing a sari today? Not are you sorry, but are you wearing a sari? No, I don't see any of that today. Is anybody wearing a robe today? No, because that's not, you're not an Indian culture. When I was in India, my wife and the women wore saris, you know, and there's, and there's there's dress codes and there's smells when you get around different cultures. How many know it sometimes smells different than it does in your house? Oh, that smells weird. No, you smell weird to them. They have an accent. No, they think you have an accent. So the biblical laws were there for culture. But not only that, there were morals. So now that in the New Testament that we can eat whatever we want, does that mean we practice homosexuality? No, because the law of homosexuality, the law of adultery, the law of don't steal murder is a different kind of law than don't mix two claws together. Did you ever hear about God judging a nation because they mix two claws together? No, but you hear about him judging Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, God's laws for his people, according to their culture, was for them and the sojourners that came with them. They were not to those, uh, the the Jewish people were not to take those laws and judge other nations by. Can I hear an amen to that? Come on, you got to think about it. Why didn't they go around to other nations sticking a sword down their neck saying, well, you guys mix two claws together. We got a problem with you. Or because of this. No, no, that wasn't the issue with the other nations. God held the nations by the moral law. That's Romans chapter 1. So when you look to the Old Testament, is there a moral law? Absolutely. Those moral laws continue from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But are there cultural laws in the Old Testament? Yes. But do they carry to the New Testament? No, because right here it says, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Read the next part. Or with regard to a what? Religious festival. Well, we don't celebrate Christmas. Well, we celebrate Christmas. We don't. Who cares? Celebrate or don't celebrate. That's what Paul said. One takes a day, makes it sacred. The other one doesn't care. All days are alike. Don't let anybody judge you by that. Do you think you could do that in the Old Testament? Hey, I'm going to eat whatever I want. Don't judge me. You died on the Old Testament law if you gathered sticks on the Sabbath. 
Those cultural laws were upheld even sometimes with death penalties. But now Paul is saying you can eat whatever you want. You think you could have did that in the Old Testament? No, because it was a different set of laws. Same God, different set of laws. I'm the same father, but I have different sets of laws for different folks for different strokes at different times and seasons of my life. I hold you by a different set of laws than I hold my children by. God's free to give us his laws, his commandments at his time without contradiction. Can I hear an amen? So right now in the New Testament, when he's saying you can eat what you want, that doesn't contradict the Old Testament. It's the same God. The same God is teaching you a lesson. Jewish people, you live by these codes. You're not like these people. New Testament, Jew and Gentile, you can eat whatever you want because it's not about the external. It's about the internal. Same God. Same God. Somebody say, same Jesus. Same Jesus yesterday, today, and forever. Keep reading with me in Colossians. It says, do not let anybody judge you with regard to religious festival, a new moon, which is a Jewish festival, celebration, or a what? Sabbath day. So now you see, if anyone judges you by a Sabbath day, they are violating what Paul taught. Now notice what he says about those things. Were those things unimportant? Did they not have their place? Diets, special days in the Jewish festival? No, they had their place. But notice what he says in verse 17. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in who? Christ. So where is my culture now? In my diet? No, it's in Christ. Where is my dress code now? In a hijab or in a head cover? No, it's in Christ. Where is now my special day? Is it celebrating a Sabbath or a new? No, it's where? In Christ. Christ over culture, all of it. And that's why he goes on to rebuke them and says, people who do these things act like they're humble. Oh, I'm just humble. I'm following this New Testament. Yeah, why are you throwing stones at me? While you're judging me for eating bacon, amen, you act all humble until we call you out. No, brothers and sisters, don't fall for those who are doing those kinds of things. And let me just show you one. Can I show you one right now where they tried to slip it in? Go to Galatians chapter 4. During the time of Paul, the Jewish people said, hey, man, we see a lot of Gentiles are coming in, and we want them to get circumcised like us because that was the first part of our covenant. And in the second service, we're going through Hebrews chapter 11, and we're learning about the heroes of the faith. And if you know, Abraham was the founder of the Jewish faith, and the first thing that he really asked him to do to show him, uh, to, to Abraham to show God that he would be obedient was to get snipped, was to get circumcised. How many know that would hurt men as a grown man getting circumcised? Amen. Imagine some of you men who are not circumcised. Imagine us doing it now, okay? That's what it was like for Abraham. If you're serious, get circumcised, okay? And then from there came everything else, came the building up of the covenant and of the Old Testament law all the way to the time of Moses, Mount Sinai, all 613. So now in the New Testament, the Gentiles are getting saved. They're coming to church. And, and I know our congregation pretty well. For the most part, we are a non-Jewish congregation. There are a few Jewish people that come in here and we love you. Shalom Aleichem. And we pray for the peace of Israel. But listen, most of us are Gentiles when we come here, right? So we can relate to this. So the Jewish people were watching all these Gentiles come in and they said, hey, you know what? We get it. You can't do everything that we've been doing, but do just this one thing. Get circumcised. And they compelled them to do it, and they tried to make a case out of it, and they said, look, Abraham got circumcised. Moses got, they were all getting circumcised. Man, that's all you got to do. Just get circumcised. Now, notice what Paul begins to say to them in Galatians, uh, rather chapter 3, not chapter 4. Go to Galatians chapter 3. You foolish Galatians. Look, is he, does he talk to them softly? No, he tells them, you're fools. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by the means of the Spirit are now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Why are you now trying to keep the law to be blessed when you know that how you got your blessing was from believing? And then he actually goes to Abraham and says, was Abraham blessed before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised? And what does the Bible say? Abraham was blessed before he was circumcised. That's what the new covenant is. It's a blessing of believing. Can I hear an amen? Now notice this right here. He then says to them that if they want to continue in this kind of behavior, that they should just go all the way and emasculate themselves. So let me get it right here to you. Go with me to Galatians now chapter 4. 
Galatians chapter 4 where he rebukes them for wanting to do this. And it says if they're going to continue on to want to get circumcised, they might as well just go about and emasculate themselves. Somebody help me find it. I'm losing my spot here. Galatians chapter 4, I believe it's here. He says, why don't they just go all the way and cut it off? Somebody help me out if you know the Bible like we all should. Is it 5? It is. Thank you, my brother. I was off a chapter. Look at it now in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7. You who are running a good race, who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? The truth is we're saved by grace through faith without the works of the law. Can I hear an amen? The kind of persuasion does not come from one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view than this. The one who is throwing in you in confusion, whoever they may be, will have to pay the penalty. Now watch this. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the Christ has been abolished. As for those agitators, I will wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. <laughs> you think he's playing? So why today do people play with the laws of God, acting like in the new covenant, you can bring them over and now tell people they have to keep it? Think about that. Circumcision should be the obvious one. Even before the Sabbath, you should get circumcised, right? If you're just thinking logically about how the covenants work, if one of the first things they were told to do was get circumcised, well, then obviously you should do that, right? But notice right here, right at the beginning of the church, Paul is saying, look, man, you're fools if you believe this. And anyone who's telling you you could get circumcised, you might as well just have them emasculate you because you don't have any manhood left anyway. You don't know how to stand up for what you believe in. So stand up for the gospel of grace. Amen? Understand that Christians are Christians because we follow Christ. And that the law of God to the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ. And so those other things are types and shadows, as the Bible says. So you can keep playing with your, your privates, or you can have Christ. As I've said before, you can have the phone or the shadow of the phone. Which one do you want? You can keep a diet if you want, or you can have the one that the diet was all about. You can keep trying to have special days, or you can have the one that the special day is all about. I would rather have Jesus than the shadow of Jesus. Amen? Now, going back to John chapter 20, first day of the week. You all ready for this? I mean, you all learning something? First day of the week. First day of the week. That's why we meet on first day of the week. Now, you might say, Pastor, what if I want to meet on the last day of the week, the Sabbath? You can do that. You can do a whole lot of Jewish things if you want. You're more than welcome to do it. What you're not welcome to do, is, as Paul said, is to agitate people with it. You can't agitate people with it because when you do that, that's a false humility. So we teach the commands of God here. Now, that doesn't mean we don't teach any commands of God. We teach the moral laws of God. When we teach a sinner to stop sinning, where do we go? Just go quickly with me, Galatians chapter 5. Same book that said don't mess with people about circumcision. What did he say to get in people's business about? The deeds of the flesh. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. Deeds of the flesh is what you get in people's business about because you care about people. Now you can't, you can't make them do it, but you got to tell them what the Word of God says. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft. See, these are the moral laws of God. This is not a Sabbath law. This is not a festival law. This is not a dietary law. Is everybody getting this? Can I hear an amen? Amen. This is not a dress code. This is the moral law. These are what nations were judged. They were judged for witchcraft. They were judged for idolatry. I mean, I've been going through the year Bible right now, and I'm halfway through. You know, as we come through the halfway point of the year, I'm in 2 Kings, and man, I feel sorry for these guys, man. They can't get nothing right. And then I look at my own life, and I go, if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be just like every one of these wicked people I'm, re I'm reading about. But they just don't learn. Stupid is as stupid does. One king gets judged for not doing the right thing, gets punished, gets disposed. God raises up another and then the dude goes, I'm going to be just like that one. No, man, don't be like that one. No, don't do it. Oh, yeah, he does it. And then look what happens to him. And then now I'm at the point where they just all got taken into captivity. Israel, the 10 tribes, northern tribes taken into Syria, the 10 southern tribes getting ready to get, uh, you know, taken into Babylon. And the thing that gets me is right before they went into Babylon, the guy was calling on the king of, of, of Judah, was calling on the Babylonian king to be his friend. His friend then turned on him after he showed him all the gold of the temple. <laughs> 
This just shows you, man, you can't make friends with the world and expect them not to come get you in the end. Are you listening? That's why they don't invite me on Larry King Live or, you know, Pierce Brosnan or whatever these, not Pierce Brosnan, but Morris, uh, Pierce Morgan and these shows because I'm not trying to be their friends. I love them in Christ Jesus. I'm going to preach the word to them, but they will turn their back on you so quick. Look what they did to Hillsong. Hillsong was on Oprah Winfrey. You know, Carl Lentz was on this one and that one. Now they're making documentaries exposing his whole life. They'll be the first ones to turn on you. So here's this king, and he's in trouble. He calls on Babylon, come help me, come help me. Babylonian king's like, oh, yeah, I'll come help you, dude. Show me all the gold, man. And he shows them all the gold. He helps them out. And then you can just imagine that king goes back to his people. Look, when this is done, we're taking them over too. <laughs> That's what the world is like. Don't be a friend of the world in that way. That's why the Bible says, how can two walk together unless they agree? Amen. Now, I'm not saying that you can't love them and work with them and do good things, but you better understand you of the God kind of people. Amen? You're of the God kind of people. You understand what Christians are here to do on this earth. We are roof breakers, history makers, world changers. Amen? So get, get together with godly people and do godly things lest they turn their back on you as they did for these folks. But anyways, when you go back here to the scripture, they were always trying to pull these, these heretics, these liars, were always trying to pull people away from the things of God. Galatians says this is what it looks like. This is what sin looks like. Don't go away from it. Notice this. Impurity, or immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition. Sounds like uh, a reality show today, right? Dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Now, what does he say here? I what? Half y'all got your Bibles open. What does it say? I, I warn you. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're warners. So that's why we teach the commands of God. Can I hear an amen? I don't teach Old Testament laws. I'm not in that covenant. I couldn't do it even if I tried. There's not a temple. There's not a priesthood. There's a hundred other things that are not there for me to do it. So why play make-believe with it? I don't want the shadow. I want the reality. On the first day of the week, everything changed. It went from old to new. Hallelujah. It went from the shadow to the reality. The covenants changed. Your Bible was split in two from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I thank God that I'm here on the first day of the week with a risen Lord and Savior who kept his word to his people and has brought us in. Amen. And now I, I warn you as I have been warned. Don't you live like this. Well, I got Jesus. You'll go to hell with that kind of Jesus because the Bible says it real clear. If you got the real Jesus, you won't live like this. Well, I thought we're all sinners. You need to stop being a sinner. Start being a saint. Well, don't we all make mistakes? Yeah, we do, but you need to be forgiven and changed. You're not a dummy. You would not continue to bless your children if they did the same stupid thing over and over and over again. Well, I just can't help myself. Oh, yes, you can. I'm going to take away that pad for a little bit and teach you how to help yourself. Well, my friends made me do it. Well, you know, the stupid is the stupid does, and I know you've got to be smarter than your friends. So I'm going to have you stay at home for the next couple of weeks until you learn how to pick the right friends. How many know they're going to start changing real quick? You think God talks to us differently? Oh, I just love you so much. Break my commandments. You know, that's why I died on the cross, so that my precious blood could clean your filth every day. That's why I did it. I didn't do it to change you. I just did it to wash you every time you wanted to be dirty. See, us men and some women here, you know what I'm talking about. You get out in your garage, you get out in your backyard, you get dirty. And then you got some dirty old rag over there in that garage. And when you get done, you wipe that oil on it. And then by, by the end of the summer, it can stand up on its own. <laughs> you know what I'm talking I got some rags that literally can stand up just like this. I got so much stuff on there. They should test it for a, an alien species. I'm creating a, a new element with what I got on that rag. And that's how some people treat the blood of Jesus. Well... Oh, I sinned. Well, that's okay. I got the rag. I got the, I got, you know, I got that. No, that's not what the blood of Jesus came from. Go, I uh, came for, go to 1 John, go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin. What is the first intention as a Christian that we should have in our heart not to sin? So that's why when people come to me and they say, well, it's this certain day of the week. And No, 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 let's just be honest, man. Whatever command, we better be keeping. But if it's not a command, if it's merely a tradition of the past, that's not for me. Don't put that burden on me. But what it is, uh, but what is a command, those deeds of the flesh, those real issues of the heart that the Bible says we are to warn one another over, to say if you continue in these things, 
that you cannot inherit the kingdom of God? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. My dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the world. Oh, there it is, Pastor. I get forgiven. Keep going. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But anyone who obeys his word, the love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Every poor excuse for a sinner will, every poor excuse for a Christian will tell you they're still a sinner. That, that's how they ease their conscience. Well, I'm still a sinner. I'm still a sinner. Not according to the Bible. That's why in every New Testament epistle written by Paul, he addresses them as saints, to the saints of Ephesus. Are there any saints in Chicago? Come on, St. Jason of Chicago. Amen. They're going to be looking for your water stain under a bridge pretty soon. Amen. Oh, did you hear about St. Jason of Chicago? He could pray for the sick and recover. I think I see a, a, a burned image of it on my toast. Here's St. Here's Jason of Chicago. You see, we make these people our idols. Bible says that's standard for a Christian. It's a standard for a Christian to be holy. It's the standard of a Christian to be able to get answers to prayer. It's the standard of a Christian to live right. And for people to want to be around you and to be like you. Why? Because you're like Jesus. Whoever says they know him ought to live like him. Going back to John chapter 20. Changed everything right here on the first day of the week. My Savior rose from the dead. Hallelujah. Mary Magdalene is looking for him. Now, if you go to our notes on the app, in which we normally would have up there on the karaoke screen, you'll see that I give you a link to harmonizing the four Gospels because some people think they're so smart they're going to find contradictions in the Scriptures. Well, well, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it says all the women went to the tomb. In John's Gospel, it just says one of the women went to the tomb. I have taught this by God's grace in, in cemetery, I mean seminary. And you know what? At the end of the day, nobody cares. They just do this to mess with you. But I put this in your notes so that you can go and see if you are a detailed person and you want to understand how the Gospels harmonize and make surround sound complementary, not contradiction, check it out. But I do just want you to see, as always, the Holy Spirit, through different authors, always comes up with Holy Ghost dinks. Are you ready? Because in the Synoptic Gospels, it talks about multiple women going to the tomb. In this one, it only says Mary who? What's Mary? Mary Magdalene. But notice this. Keep going. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, who we believe is John speaking about himself in the third person, and said, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And what? And what? And we don't know where they have put him. And I don't know where they have put him. And we don't know where they have put him. See, does every gospel writer have to tell every single detail? It doesn't. It, the, the, literally, the gospel would be longer than an encyclopedia. Then Jesus woke up. Then Jesus scratched his back and said, I got to get to work today, guys. And then this one did this. And th that's not what they're doing. That's not no, number one. No one even does that today. When they write autobiographies or biographies about other people's life, there's no, there's no book like that. We would get so bored. Like, get to the point, man, like 500 pages, and then I stepped out, you know, later, 500 pages later, and then I stepped out my house. Like, come on, man, because every detail doesn't matter. We just want to get to the main point. Notice John doesn't tell you about all the women being there, but when she speaks, he quotes her in the plural. Do you notice that? See, those are Holy Ghost dinks to show you that John is not trying to contradict the synoptic gospels. The reason why they call them the synoptic gospels is because they sound so similar. If we look at church history and we take it serious, we understand that John's gospel is written later after those gospels. And more than likely, John is already familiar with the way that his friends told the story. What John is wanting to do is fill in different information and give you things to think about. And so those are the things that he wants you to know is that Mary Magdalene was 
was there because she was a key figure. And that when Mary Magdalene was talking, she talked for the rest of the women. Now, moving on to verse 3. So Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. This is how I know John wrote this gospel because he says he outrun Peter right there. You know that dude remembers that. So we're both heading to the tomb, but you know I ran faster than Peter. Look, at he didn't have to tell us that, but he wants to tell us that. See, the Holy Ghost allowed him to do that, to get some credit. Now, to, to the defense of Peter, Peter was an older man, according to the, uh, the traditions, and John was a young man. And so John outrun, uh, outran Peter to the tomb. Now look at there, verse 5. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. Now, I have also there a link under the cloth, the Shroud of Turin. How many have ever heard of that, the Shroud of Turin? About four of you watching the National Geographic. The rest of you probably don't. Uh, the Shroud of Turin is thought to be Jesus' burial cloth. If you ask me what I believe, I'm going to change my opinion depending on what day it is to whether or not I believe it. Right now, I'm about 60% no, 40% yes. But it is very interesting how this shroud has been preserved, how they there are scientific, uh, unexplained things about it. And so if you are a nerd and you like those kinds of things, the three of you who raised your hand, you know, it's okay to be a theological nerd. Go and research it. This is all that I ask is that if you become convinced of it, don't become now like a Roman Catholic lighting candles to it, kissing it, and telling us that we all need it as a relic. Can I hear an amen for that? But if God left it for us as an evidence, why not? And uh, there are some very smart people much smarter than me in those areas of, of chemistry and of geology and of history, studying the, the components of the cloth and the, 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 the stain or as it were, the imprint on the cloth. And it's very interesting to how that could be so. But here's what I want us to know. When Jesus got up, he didn't get up in grave clothes. He got up in the glory of God. Amen. And so that's how we get up. We're not going to be wearing Armani or Gucci or Skechers we're getting up in the glory of God at the resurrection. And because he rose, I get to rose, I get to rise. And because he has a new body, I get to forever have a glorified body. So here we see that Jesus doesn't come out like a mummy because that's how sometimes people try to explain this in the natural. Uh, they, they impugn the character of the Romans and say, oh, they didn't know he was dead and they just kind of threw him in there and then eventually he gets out. Well, first of all, you don't know the Romans then, especially according According to history, they knew how to kill people, okay? And they gave him a death blow, as we learned in John, the spear through the side that the blood and water came out. And you can research that. That's because it hit his vital organs and all of those uh, uh, liquids came out. So they knew he was dead. That's why they had to break the legs of the others is because Jesus had already been beaten within an inch of his life before being put on the cross, and the other thieves had not. So they were still up there struggling to breathe. They break the legs. Now they can't breathe. They die of suffocation. But in the story, Jesus is already dead. Remember, he releases his spirit to the Father. And so that's what's most important. But everybody get this. If now you see just by the, for the sake of argument, you see Jesus the way he would look after that whole ordeal come out the grave, do you think you would worship that man and believe he was raised from the dead? Of course not. You would say, man, Dito, Dito, I feel sorry for you. You know, let me, let me get this for you. Let's put Jesus back together again. So number one, they impugn the character of the Romans who knew how to uh, execute people. And then number two, they impugn the character of the disciples like they would be so stupid to look at somebody beaten within an inch of their life, coming out of the tomb like a zombie wrapped in all of these clothes going, Jesus is Lord. Yeah, I'm willing to believe that now and go die at the hands of Romans. Just as they almost killed him, I'm willing to let him kill me now because I believe this thing is my Lord. This, this mutilated man, of course not, brothers and sisters. So notice here that the testimony of the, the disciples is that the clothes were left behind because he's rising in glory. But what we're going to soon see is that the only thing that remains out of the whole ordeal is the scars in his hands, his feet, and in his side so that we can forever remember the sacrifice Jesus paid for us to be forgiven. Amen? 
Angels don't get that. They only had one choice, heaven or hell. They've already made their choice. But it's humanity that after making the bad choice had the chance of another choice and forever will know Jesus Christ as our Savior. Think about that. No angel can know Jesus today as a Savior. You are above angels in the love of God. God loves us more than angels. Tell that to any demon coming around you in Jesus' name. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus, and I just want to remind you I'm more loved by God than you because you're going to hell. Come on, think about it. Why didn't he give him a second chance? He didn't love him like he loved us. We were made uniquely in the image of God. Don't blow this second chance that you have, brothers and sisters, because as surely as fallen angels are going to hell, you'll go to hell with them, as the Bible says. Matthew chapter 25, he says, he will say to those who did not obey him and do what's right, depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. And then what? I am sending you to hell. Get out of my presence to hell, the place prepared for the devil and his angels. Can I hear an amen to that? Final judgment. But the beauty of this is that he comes out in the glory of God. He doesn't come out like a zombie. He comes out in the glory of God. Now let's keep going. Verse 8. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now notice this. This is what we call... The criteria of embarrassment. Somebody say the criteria of embarrassment. If you were to make this story up, let's now go to another possibility that people also give. Jesus actually died, and they knew that he died, but they stole the body. Remember, the Jews said that you know this would be the lie they would go with. Uh, the disciples steal the body, but then start a false religion so they can get money and power. You all tracking with that understanding? That would never make sense to those Jewish boys because that would be idolatry, and that would be a death sentence. The Jews had lived under Roman oppression knowing that they don't worship anyone but the one true God. Why would they now call this man their God and suffer under Roman persecution? It makes no sense. But just follow along. Let's just say that happens. Now imagine this. They're trying to convince you, say a person living in Corinth or a person living in Ephesus, that their religion is true. And they're going to put together a story about that event where they were convinced that, you know, their religion is true. Do you think they're going to write a story where they make themselves out to be the Oompa Loompas? <laughs> Literally, the woman gets there first. That's why I believe in women preachers. They're the first one to talk about the resurrection. Come on, somebody. And then the disciples are scared, and then it even puts in our gospel, they went to the tomb to see it, and it was empty, though they still didn't understand what he had did. Why would you put that in there if you were making up a story? Especially if you're Peter, you're John, you're one of the main guys. The story's going to go something like this. And Peter and John expecting the one that they had believed in to rise from the dead were there at the tomb before the women came. And then when they saw that the tomb was empty, they immediately believed and connected all of these Old Testament prophecies together and said like Sherlock Holmes, aha, there it is. See, this is the criteria of embarrassment. We show our story to be true by the embarrassing things that it says about our main guys. It says here that they still did not even get it. The body is gone. The clothes are left there. And they're still going like, man, what happened? Let's go on. Verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away. See, she doesn't even get it. Man, this is one that rose from the dead. No, she thinks the body is stolen. She said, and I don't know where they have put him. So she's not thinking he's raised from the dead. She's thinking somebody stole the body. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus because he's in the glory of God. Can I hear an amen? The Bible says in the book of Revelation, when John, who was Jesus' best friend, saw him, he went right down at his feet and kissed it. When you see Jesus in his glorious state, he's not going to look like that Jesus you see in the paintings or even in the movies. He's going to be so glorious, brighter than the sun. The Bible says like a rainbow is around his head. His feet are burnished like brass, and when he speaks, it's like the sound of thunder. Amen? He's not going to be looking like Brad Pitt. He's going to look like the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the creator of the nations, of the peoples. So she doesn't get it yet. She's still like trying to figure this out. 
They asked her, woman, where, why are you crying? So she's trying to put it together. And then she said, I don't know where they put him. And then Jesus is standing there. And he says, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned around, uh, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And now she knows it's Jesus because he said her name, maybe in a way that she could recognize. Verse 17, now Jesus says, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news and gospel is good news, right? She said, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he, and she told them that he had said these things to her. There's the first preacher is a woman. Amen. Now notice this as we've talked about it over and over and over again. Why Jesus has a father and a God if he himself is God. So highlight that and then put some stars next to it and then right next to it. This is for my JW friends when they come around. Because what did the Jehovah Witnesses always like to say? Well, if you Christians believe Jesus is God, why does he say he has a God? Does God have a God? And they think that is like the most amazing argument. They think they defeated the understanding of the Trinity. Brothers and sisters, first of all, let me ask you this. If I am a father, does that mean I don't have a father? No, I can be a father and have a father. Jesus is everlasting father like the father, but he's not the father. Everyone understand this. You can have a father and be a father at the same time. Can I hear an amen to this? Also, if Jesus has a God, what does that mean? Jesus came in the flesh. God is the God of all flesh. When Jesus is on earth, is he going to say, I don't have a God? I don't believe in the Father? Is he going to deny the relationship he has with the Father? Of course not. Go with me quickly to the book of Psalms. Psalm 16, verse 10. When Jesus came into flesh, he came under the authority of his Father. Everyone understand the Trinity. There is one being of God shared by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Think of like a triangle, not the Illuminati, but the Trinity. We own shapes, they don't. Amen? Somebody think, oh, he's with the Illuminati. He has a triangle. Listen, my God makes shapes. He makes triangles, circles, and squares. They belong to us, not to you. Get your hands off them and stop calling me a conspiracy theorist, okay, or a conspiracist. Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Now, notice this here. In him, we're in Christ. We're in the triune nature of God. Now, understand this. Father is not the Son. Father and Son is not the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit have been in eternal relationship with each other and in equality. We'll get there in just a moment because once the J-dubs go here, I go, oh, you like John 20, huh? I got some good things to show you in John 20. We're just going to keep reading on down to make sure you get all of John 20. I love staying in the passages they think is going to put a pebble in my shoe but actually drops a boulder on them. Amen? Okay, so notice this. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, not the same as persons, but the same in essence and in being. How is this similar to us? Think about all of us here. We are all different persons, but we share humanity. Is there anyone here listening to me that's not a human? By nature, you are a what? A human. But are you and I the same person of a human? No. God in his nature is divine. Divinity. Who shares divinity like we share humanity? Father, Son, Spirit. Are you with me? Amen. Now go to Psalm 16, verse 1. When Jesus takes on flesh, he now becomes a man. Fully God, but he takes on flesh. If I become a spaceman and put on a spacesuit, do I stop becoming a man? No, I am now just a spaceman. When Jesus took on flesh, he did not stop being God. He simply became a man, the God-man as we know it. Now look at Psalm chapter 16 about the relationship Jesus now takes, starting in verse 10, with the Father. Notice this. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also rests secure. Oh, excuse me. This is a different uh, passage here. Let's go to... Um, Sorry, I gave you the wrong one. Let me get this for you real quick here. Oh, no, it's not. It's Jeremiah 32, 27. Go to, my, uh, go to this prophet here, Jeremiah 32, 27. Somebody say, work the word. Amen. I love it when I got to work the word. 
Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 27. Working the word with you. And I got it highlighted here, just in case you all thought I was cheating. I'm not cheating here. I've been, I've been on this. How many are going to learn something, though? Because if you don't know where I'm going, you're going to learn something. You're going to learn this. You've got you to teach it to others. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I am the Lord, the God of all what? Mankind. In the King James, God of all what? Oh, I'm sorry. You don't have, nobody has King James here. I thought somebody might have had it. I was trying to give the King James folks. These thou's and, and all of these beseecheth these. You know, I thought somebody had it here. Okay. He is the God of all flesh. There we go. Somebody got that app to work. Come on. Switch that translation. Don't notice this. When Jesus becomes flesh, does his flesh have a God over him? Yes. Confused looks keep us here until 4th of July parties, okay? I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not a used car salesman. Sometimes I say, you talk so fast, I just don't get it. It seems like you're trying to trick me. No, I'm not. Go very, very slow. Hold these two places. I am now, Jesus speaking, returning to your father and my father. Your God and whose God? My God. Why is Jesus saying he has a father and he has a God if he himself is a father like God the Father? Isaiah 9 says he shall be called everlasting father. How many know that Christmas verse? Okay. How does he have a father if he's also a father? How does he have a God if he has a God? Let me give you another understanding. If I'm a boss, can I also have a boss? Yes, just not in the same way. So he's a God, he has a God. He's a father, he has a father. How does that work? Go back to Jeremiah. Some of you wanted to shout it out. I'm asking rhetorical questions. Otherwise, we'll turn this into a class, put a mic there, and you guys will start talking. He has a father and a God because he came in the flesh. And God is the God, the father of all flesh. That's why. Somebody would say that, right? You ready to say it? Amen. I'm going to preach it while you say it. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Jesus in the flesh. Is his flesh under a God? Yes. Flesh belongs to God. He has to give that flesh to God. Does he have a father if he has flesh? Father in this sense means creator. Does he have someone that created that flesh? Yes, so when he says, I'm going to my father and to your father, my God, and to your God, he's obviously talking about going to heaven to be with the father. But does that mean now when he goes to the father, he's not equal with the father? Does that now mean he's not God like the father? Of course not. How do we know that? Because the entire book of John contradicts what the Jehovah Witness say about him. How do we go to the book of John to show them this? How about the first verse? Go to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 1, verse 14. What does it then say? And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John 1.18, same chapter, same author. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and his closest relationship with the Father has made him known. I don't understand people who don't want to see it. You can't use John chapter 20 to say he's less than God. Why does God have a God? Jesus has a God because he has taken on flesh. Then they run to Revelation and go, oh, 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 but now he's in heaven and he uses the same language. Yes, because guess what? In heaven, he still has what? Flesh. He's the seed of David. If Jesus does not contain flesh for all of eternity, there is no hope for our resurrected flesh. The fact that Jesus has on resurrected flesh is not for him to be God. It's not a man becoming God. It is God becoming men that men who have sinned might become like God. God was already God, Father, Son, Spirit, in the beginning. Jesus takes on flesh because we blew it in the garden. He resurrected with flesh to keep us in relationship with him as body, soul, and spirit for all of eternity. 
God did not make you to be a disembodied spirit like Casper the ghost. God made you to dwell in a garden in a physical body. When Adam and Eve lost, Jesus Christ got back, and now he's the first fruit born among the dead, the Bible says, the first among many brothers and sisters. Why? Because now we share in the new race. The new race of humanity is the God kind of race. Not the way the world looks at it between different cultures and so forth. No, on the day of resurrection, we will become a different kind of human. A human that has a resurrected body like Jesus. Where those going to hell get a body like the one they've had on earth but does not die and will suffer forever in eternity. You are the children of God, aliens. You are a special, unique creation. Everybody listening to me, put all those scriptures together. Why does that work? Because Jesus is the resurrected Lord and Savior. Hallelujah. So he's returning to heaven to be with the Father. Verse 19, on the evening of the first day of the week, and we might stay here till evening. You all ready for that? Okay, let's keep going here. On the evening of that first day of the week, verse 19, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. This is before the assalamu alaikum of the Muslims. They take it from us and they uh, abuse this to say like, oh, we speak like Jesus. Listen to me. Don't let a Muslim talk more like Jesus than you. Say peace to one another. Amen? But every now and then they'll say, look, we more like Jesus than you are. We say peace. We pray on our face and all of this. And we saw Jesus praying on his face in the garden. But listen, Christians need to do this. Bow down when you pray at times and say peace one to another. Amen? He stood among them and said, peace, shalom be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and his side. That's all that remained of those scars. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, notice this, he breathed on them and said, receive what? The Holy Spirit. There's your blessed Trinity. The Father has sent me. The me there is who? Jesus, Father, Son, and now he's breathing on them. What? The Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit. You'll find the triune persons of God all throughout the Scripture. Well, where's the word Trinity? I won't believe it. And I ask him, what's your name? My name's Bob. Well, find me Bob in the Bible, and until then, I don't believe in you. Don't get into the etymology fallacy with people, unless it's this specific word. What we mean by Trinity is there are three that are one. Baptize them in the one name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Everybody with me? And these three bear record in heaven, the Word, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit, and the, and the Word, and these three are one. The Bible teaches us that there is one in one way and a plurality in another way. Like there's one nation, United States of America, but there's many people. Somebody say the one and the many. There is one nation called the United States of America, but how many know there's many people? There is one God, but the many persons, Father, Son, Spirit. You all tracking with me? And when you see the scriptures, you'll understand it perfectly. Son comes from the Father. He's standing there with them. He then breathes on them the Holy Spirit. This is why we believe in Acts chapter 1 and 2, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not for salvation. It's for the evidence of speaking in other tongues to have shikaboomba power, dynamite power. Why? Because they were regenerated here by the Holy Spirit, and then on the day of Pentecost, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. There is a day you're born of the Spirit, and then there's a day you're baptized by the Spirit. And that's how the disciples were. Here you don't see them speaking in tongues. Here you don't see them beginning the work of the church. That doesn't happen until the day of the outpouring on Pentecost. And if you look for contradictions, you might try to find one. Well, it says here in John, they received the Spirit, but on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came down. And he said, don't leave until you receive it. So which one is it, preacher? It's both and. Holy Spirit's breathed on them that day, not Benny Hinn, hot Cheeto breath. <sighs> No, not none of that. Real breath of the Spirit because it was Jesus who breathed into Adam in the garden. The Spirit that gave him life. Are you listening? That same Jesus now is restoring to these boys the spiritual rebirth. The new humanity is starting on the inside. But then as you go into Acts, you then hear, now don't leave until you receive the promise that my Father gave to the prophets. And when you see Peter preaching, what is that promise of Joel? That power will come in the last days. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Amen. 
So here you see regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Why is that important to John? Because that's what he was talking about in John chapter 3, verse 3. Unless you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. John is concluding all of the thoughts that he was putting at the beginning. Jesus is not the Father, but he's God like the Father. Jesus is talking about spiritual rebirth. Now he's giving them spiritual rebirth. Amen? Somebody say, now Thomas. Amen. Verse 24, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So during that time. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I put my, uh, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Three times he says peace to them. He comes right into the room because the spiritual body can walk through walls. Amen. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Stephen said to him, my Lord and my angel. Is that what he said? My Lord and the one I really honor. He said, my Lord and my God. So I always go back to Jehovah's Witnesses. If you think Jesus is saying he's not God in John chapter 20 because he has a God, read on down to what Thomas calls him, my Lord and my God. And remember, I had a psalm for you. That's Psalm. Now let's go there. Psalm chapter 35, verse 23. How many know these boys knew the Old Testament? Come on, I said, how many know these men knew the Old Testament? Psalm 35, verse 23. What did Thomas say to Jesus? My Lord and my what? I hope you all are ready to go back to karaoke after all this because my Polish fingers have a hard time flipping pages, man. Man. 35, verse 23. Awake. Hold on, do I got the right? Yes. Psalm 35, 23. Yes. Awake and rise to my defense. Contend for me, my what? My God and what? Lord. Exactly the same, except one is my Lord and my God. My God and my Lord. Exactly the same. When Thomas addressed Jesus, he addressed him with the words of the psalm toward the one God. Who did Thomas believe Jesus was? His Lord, Yahweh, the great I am, and God, the Elohim, the creator of the heavens and earth. Why would anyone go to John chapter 20 and try to find a contradiction with Jesus saying, my father and my God? Jesus has a relationship with the father in his fleshly nature as he will now have as he continues on. But what is he in his essence? What has he been for eternity? He has been Lord and God. There Thomas saw that and declared that. Then Jesus told them, uh, told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. How many today are more blessed than Thomas today? You haven't seen the side, you haven't touched the hands, but you still believe in Jesus. He put a blessing in there for us because he knew a lot of people would be like Thomas, saying, oh, I have to have a dream or a vision or something like that, and praise God when it does happen. But I am so thankful, brother, that you and I are honored above Thomas today when we believe without having to touch and see. We believe it based on the evidence. We believe it based on our experience. We believe it because we've seen Christ's transforming power in our lives. And these last few verses in closing as the keyboardist comes, please. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So remember we talked about all the Gospels being incomplete if you're looking for something to be detail by detail. But they're perfectly adequate, as the Bible says, for training the man or woman of God for the ministry to correct, rebuke, reprove, to build themselves up in the things of God. And now notice John right here. Because we started here, when we started the book of John, because I wanted you to know why he wrote the book, he now tells you, but these are written. What are the these, the seven signs of John? Remember, John's gospel has seven signs. It's a very spiritual book, but John does not contain as many miracles as the other gospels do. Even though the other gospels, like Matthew and Luke, start with genealogies, and he starts with Jesus in heaven before he comes to earth. 
You would think John would have way more things to say about Jesus' miracles. No, but John tells you, led by the Holy Spirit, that these are written, the signs, those signs that he gave, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Praise God. We're getting now to the end of the Gospel of John. And the next chapter, by God's grace, we'll get into in a couple of weeks. We have a guest coming next week, so come on out uh, to hear what they have to say. But listen to me, brothers and sisters. We are given such an ample amount of evidence to trust in Jesus. When we look at the resurrection, we see something that no other religious leader has ever done, and that is defeat death, hell, and the grave. And we find out about this one, Jesus, that he doesn't have to prove it, but anytime his disciples needed that extra push, he goes out of his way to show them who he is. If you follow in church history, Thomas eventually goes to the people of northern India to preach the gospel. They still honor him there as a saint, and they spear him to death for his faith. Why did Thomas lay down his life for Jesus? Because he believed. Because of those testimonies, we're now here as Christians. But brothers and sisters, you can't just believe it because Thomas believed it and laid down his life. You have to now research. You have to go to the gospel, to the life of Jesus, and test him at his word. And one of the first places that I always encourage seekers to seek is in the Gospel of John because there some of the most clearest statements are given like the ones we went through today. Unless a person is born again, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Think about that for a moment. How many of you wish for a second chance at life? And isn't that what your friends want? And isn't that what they're going to plastic surgeons for? And they're wanting to be stored in cryo chambers? And all of these sci-fi movies try to pique our interest for a second life, to time travel, to somehow make it all right or to live forever. And yet Jesus goes to the core of where this desire comes from. It comes from God who made us in his image. He said, spirit gives birth to spirit. As even the, the psalmist said, I believe it was the psalmist, eternity, no, it's Ecclesiastes, eternity is in our hearts. Solomon said that. How many feel before you were a Christian, eternity was in your heart? You yearned for something more. That's what John teaches us, is that Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's our Savior. He's making it possible. So if you're here today and you have not yet been born again, Accept a spiritual rebirth. For the rest of us, we've been born again. I, you know, I have, by God's grace, since 95. Listen to what we learn at the end of the story. That Jesus completes what he said he would do. Now, what does that mean for us? As we also discussed, that if he rose, we will rise as well. Remember in John, when he shows up to Lazarus' tomb, and there they are, and they're freaking out, and he says, I'm, I'm coming to raise him up. And she goes, oh, I know, I know. In the last days that will happen. See, the Jews understood that. But he says, no, no, no. I'm not just going to do that in the last days. I'm going to do it for him right now. Because I am the resurrection and the life. What does Jesus show us through the temporary resurrections of others and his eternal resurrection into that flesh is that death has nothing on him. And that we as believers, we can trust in him. At the beginning of the summer, I had to go to one of my best friend's funeral. And you know this because I've talked about it many times. But there's one thing that I didn't mention is how they presented him there at the memorial. It wasn't a casket. It was an urn of his ashes. And that's okay. We as Christians don't have a preference. It's not a command one or the other. But there was something about that reality that just set into my heart because he was younger than me. He died of an illness that took him quickly. Within 24 hours, we were praying for him in the hospital, and then we find out he's dead. 
And I kept looking at that urn. And there was a temptation for me to say, Brandon's in there. Brandon, my, my best friend is in there. But God kept telling me, no, he's up here. He's up here. He's more alive than he has ever been. He's with me. He's with me. He's with life. He's not just getting life. He's with life. He's in life. And that gave me hope. Because I still have to live down here. I still have to go through valleys that feel like they're the shadow of death hanging over me. I still have to listen to the news of Chicago's murder rate. I still have to hear the threats. I just read one today on the Open Doors Instagram. Pray for the sisters of Iran. They've been arrested and jailed for 40 days for preaching the gospel. I live in a scary world. Where whenever my kids go on mission trips, oh God, bring them back safely because I've heard of church vans getting hit by semis and all of them are gone in one accident. And yet Jesus reminds us, as he reminds all of his disciples, I'm here, I'm with you. Peace, peace, peace. Why do you think he's speaking peace all the time? Because that's the opposite of what we feel. We're in turmoil. We're turned upside down. Our lives are in a hurricane. And what is he saying over and over? Peace, peace, peace. I'm here. I'm here. And as we're going to learn, as the Holy Spirit comes in us, as it did in those disciples, where the Holy Spirit is there is the Father and the Son because they are inseparable. So if you've been born again and you have the Holy Spirit, you have the presence of the Father and the Son, even though they're on their throne, you have them with you now because Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage you before we go that if you're not born again, to get born again, and if you are born again, to live with peace to live with a relationship with the Holy Spirit that no matter how hard it gets, no matter how tough it gets, you know He's with you. Amen? Can you stand up and give it up today to the Prince of Peace? Band and altar workers, would you come please?